Adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Olivia here. I want to tell you about a new podcast from Axios called One Big Thing. It's hosted by Nyla Boodoo and features interviews with leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. Each week, you'll hear one big conversation on the trends shaping our world from people like Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, technology reporter Ina Freed, and chef and humanitarian Jose Andres. So go ahead, listen to One Big Thing on your favorite podcast app. New episodes drop every Thursday. Hello and welcome to BioEats World, a podcast at the intersection of bio, healthcare, and tech. I'm Olivia. And I'm Chris. Today's episode features A16Z Bio and Health General Partner Vijay Pandey in conversation with Lloyd B. Minor, the Dean of the Stanford University School of Medicine. Lloyd talked about his optimism for AI and medicine. But I opened one of the generative AI systems out there today, and I typed in, what is superior canal dehiscence syndrome? And I got back two paragraphs that Vijay were as good as I could have written, wow. including some of the subtleties that have come out from research over the course now of a couple of decades since it was first described. That's pretty amazing. Now, when I pushed it a little more and started asking more specific questions, then yeah, it broke down. Not surprisingly, right? Sure. But we're early on. He and Vijay also discussed how AI could change medical school and the practice of medicine for future generations of doctors. The other thing I think we need to do, continue to move away from memorization and really emphasize you know, I encourage our students to start using chat GPT and or BARD. Start seeing where its limitations are and, and understand how much you can get out of it today because it is going to be by your side for the rest of your career or something like it. So let's join Lloyd and BJ as they discuss AI and medical education, from how students learn to how doctors become licensed. You're listening to BioEats World from A16Z. Lloyd, thank you so much for being on BioEats World. Thank you so much, Vijay. I'm delighted to join you today. So could you give us a little bit of a sense of, um, of what you do in your role as Dean of Medicine at Stanford? Sure. I lead our academic medical center, Stanford Medicine. We are the School of Medicine, and we also have two healthcare delivery systems, an adult and pediatric uh, delivery system. So we are an academic medical center fully integrated with Stanford University. We're our main campus is on the campus of the university. I sit just across the street from the engineering school, from the chemistry department, the biology department. And that really is the secret sauce in that we do collaborate extensively with computer scientists, with chemists, with institutes that span a multiple schools at Stanford. Well, and actually, you raise an interesting point, which I think is often overlooked, that Cornell's medical school is in New York City, a uh, fair distance from Ithaca. Harvard's is uh, across the river in Boston. Stanford's medical school is, like as you mentioned, like right in the middle of engineering and sciences. What does that do any differently, and how impactful you know, would you say that was? I think it's hugely impactful. I think the future of life sciences 
is going to be defined by the convergence and interaction of three related but distinct disciplines and approaches, biology and biomedicine being one, information science being the second, and technology being the third. Another topic that uh, I know is dear to both of our hearts is uh, information technology, especially you know machine learning and AI. What's your take on sort of the the coming like uh, five to ten years? Where do you think the big wins will be on the sort of research side uh, from combining information technology, machine learning, AI, and so on into medicine? To begin with, I think generative AI, as it currently is being applied to text, so large language models, is a true inflection point in human history. I don't think that's going to be proven to be a hyperbole. I I think it's on par with, and perhaps in the long run, even greater than, as we consider other representational aspects of generative AI, on par with the disruption, if you will, that the internet has had in the way we live our lives. Generative AI has profound implications for every aspect of what we do in healthcare, from education, research, and, and clinical care. And I think we're only beginning to see see an outline of what that is. But, but let me give you a, an example. I'm a, a, a neurophysiologist by training. I, when I became provost of Johns Hopkins prior to moving to Stanford, uh, I transitioned my lab to other people. But there's a body of work from the first part of my career in studying how the inner ear balance system, the vestibular system works. And I described an inner ear disorder that's caused by bone that should cover the top balance canal, the superior semicircuit canal, bone that's missing in some people. And when that happens, they develop a particular constellation of symptoms and signs. And we develop, first of all, we we identified it, we developed diagnostic tests, and then a surgical procedure to correct it. It's called superior canal dehiscence syndrome. And there's a body of literature from my lab, from many other labs, over the course of many years since I first described it in 1998, talking about superior canal dehiscence syndrome. And you can find a Wikipedia entry on it as well. I recently gave a talk in a biophysics course uh, hosted by the faculty here at at Stanford by uh, one of our mutual colleagues, Jody Puglisi. So I I spoke about the work on superior canal dehiscence syndrome, and I I just opened, and I won't use names, but I opened one of the generative AI systems out there today, and I typed in, what is superior canal dehiscence syndrome? And I got back two paragraphs that VJ were as good as I could have written, wow. including some of the subtleties that have come out from research over the course now of a couple of decades since it was first described. That's pretty amazing. Now, when I pushed it a little more and started asking more specific questions, then yeah, it broke down. Not surprisingly, right? Sure. But we're early on. And I think the progress with generative AI is going to progress much more rapidly than the progress in other aspects of technology like the internet because we basically have the hardware we need. I mean, Mm -hmm. there'll continue to be compute advances. It's a matter of getting the data in and getting other representational data, such as images or sounds, and put all of that together. And that's going to transform the creation of knowledge. So as I think about it as a medical educator, already, blessedly, We've moved away from memorization in medicine. You know, when I when I was going to medical school, every test, every exam was closed book, and uh, you had to memorize every cycle of inter- intermediary metabolism. Ridiculous. I couldn't write out the Krebs cycle today. But at one point, I could do it in enormous detail and, this, you know, the sidearms and everything. Okay, that was silly. We should have never done that. Well, well, now it's even more ridiculous. The, the internet changed that, right? Because then the internet you, you can, changed that. You can Google anything while I memorize. 
That's and right. So, and so you're saying when you can like chat GPT anything or BART anything, what does that mean? Exactly. Well, I think one of the things it means is patient comes into the emergency department at two o'clock in the morning. The patient has uh, you know coronary artery disease and several other chronic medical conditions, and they've just traveled to uh, East Africa, for example, and they have a high fever. And yes, you know you can get the infectious diseases consult, and you can do a literature search. All of that takes time, and it's inefficient, and it's not good for the patient. Increasingly in the future, as more and more data sources are taken in, that physician's going to know within seconds or minutes exactly what is should be top of mind in thinking about what could be going on with that patient. Sure, there are lots of things we have to overcome in the process. There's still hallucinations in these models. We also have to be very concerned about privacy because in that example I just described to you, once social media gets interfaced with these large language models, that simple query, which did not contain any patient identifying information, that simple query could lead to the identity of the patient. Sure. So we're going to have to be concerned about privacy, and we're all going to have to be aware about uh, where these large language models are going to take us. But but we shouldn't be looking at it from the standpoint of, oh my gosh, how do we prevent this from happening? We ought to be leaning in and say, saying, how do we best utilize the technology to improve health, to improve the efficiency of healthcare delivery, and also, I think, to break down some of the barriers to access that exist in healthcare today. So you describe basically what, like, I guess programmers might call like a co-pilot model, where AI is there, in a sense, side by side with a doctor. How far do you think we can push this? To what extent do you think doctors are in the loop, but like maybe you're chatting more directly with, with AI, with a doctor in the loop? You can imagine all the benefits of scaling and, and access and so on. But, you know, if we push this maybe 10 or 20 years out, which is always hard to predict, you know, how far do you think this goes? Reticent to, to place any limitations on predictions and technology. I think we've all learned that. Yep. You, you and I both know we have colleagues who right now are working on exactly what you described. That yes. is to be able to effectively interface with patients and answer their questions and, and help them sort things out. I think that's a good thing. Of course, it needs to be done carefully, but our lifestyles today are vastly different than they were before we had the internet, before we had smartphones. And yes, there are problems that have come up because of social media, but the fact is, overall, it's democratized access to information, unquestionably, that is the internet. It's enabled a lot of things to progress more efficiently and effectively than they could before the internet. And I think large language models have the ability to scale that enormously and, and, and in a transformational way. So let's let me paint a picture where AI is omnipresent in the future as let's say you know internet is now and has been as transformative. With that in mind, how do you think about medical education? Like what is the role of the doctor in that world? And and how do you think about like educating the current crop of students and especially the next few generations or next few years uh, to move into this future? Well, a couple of ways. One is specific to Stanford and and say, related institutions. And that is, we talked before about us, our medical school, our academic medical center being on the campus of the university. We also, during the preclinical years of our medical school, we follow the same calendar as the rest of the university. We have students every quarter taking courses in computer science and other areas. We, we truly need to train multilingual physicians that, that understand, that can make a meaningful, engaged contribution to 
the evolution of the technology because, okay, they may not be the world's leading AI expert, mm -hmm. but they can sit in a room and have an intelligent conversation with those who are and help drive the direction of the field in a, in a meaningful way. So that's one thing we should be doing and are doing and look for ways through MD, PhD programs or postgraduate training programs in informatics uh, to train the next generation of people who really understand the technology and can use it efficiently and effectively. The other thing I think we need to do, continue to move away from memorization and really emphasize, you know, I encourage our students to start using chat GPT and or BARD, start seeing where its limitations are and, and understand how much you can get out of it today because it is going to be by your side for the rest of your career or something like it. Well, it's interesting because like other academic institutions are doing things like like banning it. Uh, but it seems like if this is going to be in the world, uh, we want to integrate it rather than ban it. But then how do you integrate it? Or is it still, it's still earlier? Is it sort of at the playing around stage? It's at the playing around stage. I, we have not gone as far as to look at in a systematized way at how we integrate large language models into the curriculum. But for now, we need informed users to be able to contribute to the dialogue about how we do integrate it in, into the curriculum. And one last thing on the medical education side is that how do you think about also licensing in this world? What does that mean for people and what does it mean for AI? Should we change the test to make it more relevant for people? Yes, I, a couple of things on licensing exams. First, there was a big step forward now, I think it's been a couple of years ago, where the U.S. medical licensing exam, U.S. MLE step one, moved away from reporting a score to reporting a pass-fail. And, and I think that was a big step because there there's never has been any correlation between someone making a really, really top score on the USMLE and how they're going to perform as a physician. Look, some knowledge of, of the fact basis and how facts relate to one another is still essential in the practice of medicine. And, and multiple choice licensing exams do a reasonably good job of assessing that knowledge. So I don't see the exams going away. Did it impress you that various LLMs have done very well on medical license exams? Or do you think that actually doesn't say very much about, let's say, the AI's ability to do medicine? Well, I think it says quite a bit about AI's ability to do medicine because the exams have moved away from, even prior to AI, uh, the exams have moved away from simple fact recall. And so a typical exam question today would be to present a scenario with lab findings and a, and a clinical history. There's a putative diagnosis. It may not ask the person taking the exam or the computer taking the exam what that diagnosis is. It may have questions assuming that the person knows the diagnosis about appropriate steps in management or, or therapeutics. So in other words, there are several steps in the logic that have someone or something has to go through in order to get the right answer to the question. And it's pretty impressive that the AI is able to walk those steps and to, in the vast majority of the cases, in some cases, 90% of the questions being answered correctly by generative AI. I'm curious for your general gut feeling, like for a lot of clinicians, tech is an EMR or something like that, right? Right. And they may have mixed reviews for the impact of that on, on medicine, uh, various pros and cons. Do you find that doctors are, are excited about embracing AI, um, nervous? Or I can imagine there's going to be a, a variety of point of views. I'm, I'm curious sort of what you've seen. I think doctors are, are excited about anything that 
will enable them to be more efficient and effective in delivering outstanding care to patients. What the EMR has done is simply substitute paper and a paper filing cabinet Mm -hmm. with a digital record and a digital filing cabinet. It's not really leveraging the power of information. One of the projects that we have going on here today is to look at our data ecosystem, so all patients who've received care in our delivery system, and we've licensed one of the large language models, and we're using that to help generate a response when a person types in a question to their to their physician. Um, so we, we're an epic system here, both on the adult and children's side, and of course, there's a secure portal within Epic where a patient can ask any one of their care providers a question. That's good, but it means that that care providers are working every night, you know, addressing their Epic inbox. And by the way, if you're cross-covering for a physician who maybe is on vacation and you don't know this patient and they ask you a question, you may need to spend 15 or 30 minutes reviewing their epic record in order to be able to intelligently answer that question. Why not have AI mine that record and prompt you, okay, these are the three or four things that are really significant in their history that pertain to the answer to the question. Here's what you might want to think about and present that to the physician. We're working on that now. It's not in general use. We have a group of highly technologically engaged physicians who know to be careful but who are also helping to improve uh, things to where that we could introduce that more broadly in our delivery system. Yeah, that feels like a very natural next step because the doctor is in the loop, but you're accelerating them. That's right. How does that affect the doctor's life? Do you think it means that it improves access, that you get, uh, uh, you know, the doctors can go see more patients? Does it improve care? Is a little bit of both? Well, I hope it, I hope it does all of those. But VJ, one of the things I'm most concerned about today among the healthcare workforce, doctors, nurses, everyone associated with the delivery care to patients, is resilience. You know, we just emerged from COVID, still a lot of COVID out there, but very few people getting severely ill from COVID, which is wonderful. But what has happened is, particularly at academic medical centers, we're seeing sicker and sicker patients, and we're seeing more of them. The economic effects of COVID on the healthcare delivery system were particularly hard on community-based hospitals. And so many of those hospitals are closing or reducing their services. A lot more patients are coming to referral centers like us or UCSF. And our doctors, our nurses, our everyone associated with care delivery are really working quite hard. I'm constantly inspired by the dedication of the people who are here and who are providing patient care, but everyone's resilience is being strained. Now, anything we can do to increase that, such as reducing the time that a person, that a physician needs to responsibly answer a query from a patient, so not shirking that responsibility, but rather than spending a half hour pouring over the electronic record, being able to know what's really salient immediately, that's a good thing. That improves care. It also improves efficiency, allows the physician at night to spend more time with their family or if they're in the office to to see more patients and do it more effectively. Let's say the technology is there. How long does it take for sort of the cultural element to work itself out or whatever other barriers you you may see to technology being more deeply implemented? 
Well, I think we already have some examples where, in some cases, it's more complicated than others. And with some people, it's going to be more complicated with than with others. But today, for example, for algorithms that assist in the interpretation of radiological studies, there is less and less resistance from radiologists because they're still interpreting the study. They still are responsible for the accuracy of the interpretation. But the AI has done so much to prevent them from missing something, to help organize, based upon the severity of illness, how they need to prioritize which studies they interpret first. There isn't a significant degree of resistance in the radiology community to having forms of screening AI implemented on the front end. Hmm. They're not, it's not putting radiologists out of business, but it is going to create, I think, two classes of radiologists, ones that use AI and ones that don't. And over time, the ones that don't are not going to be practicing radiology. I think people will want to use it because they can get so much more done. And and look, you know, fields like cardiology have changed dramatically. You know, many cardiologists today trained before echocardiography was mm. commonly used. Mm. Now, the power of it as a diagnostic tool is incredible. And every cardiologist has a firm understanding about how to interpret an echocardiogram. They may not be the ones always interpreting it, but they can look at the study and for sure understand its significance. I think people who go into patient care, direct patient care facing enterprises in medicine are driven to do the very best. And when technology clearly is enabling them to do the very best and not using the technology prevents them from doing that, I think they tend to migrate and adopt the technology. Taking all this into account, what advice would you give, let's say, uh, current undergrads who are thinking about medicine and want to be sort of the clinicians of the future? Well, what advice would you give them uh, for how they could uh, best accelerate their career into the world that's coming at them? In the future, even more so than has been the case in the past, physicians, people that go into medicine need to be fluent in and have an understanding of multiple different fields. One of those is certainly how to think algorithmically, how to understand at a fairly general level how algorithms work, how algorithms generate responses, generate knowledge. Because if you're going to study their responsible implementation, you've got to have a, an understanding of the way in which they're working. So that's one area, a knowledge of and fluency in algorithmic reasoning and thinking. Second is... We still need in medicine, but frankly, goes across the board in multiple fields. We need people who are well-rounded. So mm. I encourage people to study the humanities, mm -hmm. study social sciences, uh, because at the end of the day, AI is not going to take away the human condition. Mm -hmm. And um, an understanding of that, an appreciation for it is going to be important for training leaders who can actually have the impact that we need them to have. Yeah, no, that, that's so well said. And actually, at first, when you were talking about uh, having doctors learn about algorithms, that was, sounded like that's so future thinking and so different. But then again, you, know, you think about like how we've trained doctors in the past, we want them to understand chemistry and biochemistry so they can understand the fundamentals of the machines of that time that they needed to understand. So in some ways, you're also just sticking with the sort of the very understanding of what it means to be a doctor, just with different machines, perhaps. 
I, I think you said it really well. I think that's exactly right. What we have to do is make sure that we don't overload the system saying, <laughs> okay, you got, you've got to know just as much organic chemistry, and organic chemistry is wonderful, just as much organic chemistry as as yes. uh, you knew in the past, but you've also got to, got to know how to uh, how to develop algorithms, deploy them, and, and assess their efficacy. Well, and as you talked about, there are things we don't ask them to do as much memorization, so hopefully that will right. all work itself out. That's right. We're about to run out of time, so I want to see if I could uh, pick your brain on something uh, we often ask at the end to hear a little about what you do for your own health. Yeah. Uh, anything that you do for yourself that you would uh, share with the uh, listeners? Sure. I've been in California now um, over 10 years, and um, I love the fact that I can be outdoors hiking any day. Uh, I try to go to the gym three mornings a week and, oh, and exercise. I try to get some aerobic exercise every day. You know, we're, we're blessed that we can eat healthy foods here uh, all year round. And uh, maybe most importantly, one of the silver linings of COVID for me was uh, I started playing cello as a kid. I mm. uh, played a lot uh, growing up and then in college and medical school and then intermittently uh, since then. But during COVID, when everything was shut down and I didn't get on a plane for 18 months, or as my wife said, you know, if you're ever going to play the cello again, <laughs> this is the time or you're never going to do it. So I did start playing again, started studying. Um, wow. Zoom is actually pretty good for cello lessons. Started studying with my former teacher from the East Coast and now uh, playing some chamber music groups, wow. uh, which is a, just a great outlet for the soul. And so I encourage everyone, doesn't have to be music, it can be any number of things, but have something that really maintains your your resilience. I think there's never been a more important time for us, not just those of us in healthcare, but broadly speaking, to look at how resilient we are. It's a stressful world today. I don't need to tell anyone that. And we first have to take care of our own mental health. And yes, when we can do that through our activities, through our state of mind, that's always a good way to go. Well, that's a beautiful place to, to end it. Thank you so much for joining us on BioReach World. Thank you, VJ. It's great to be with you. Thank you for joining BioEats World. BioEats World is hosted and produced by me, Olivia Webb, with the help of the Bio and Health team at A16Z and edited by Phil Hegseth. BioEats World is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you have questions about the episode or want to suggest topics for a future episode, please email bioeatsworld at a16z.com. Last but not least, if you're enjoying BioEats World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. Please note that A16Z and its affiliates may maintain investments in the companies discussed in this podcast. For more details, including a link to our investments, please see a16z.com slash disclosures. Mm-hmm.